How's it going? Fine. <laughs> it was fine, and then it was like, nah, and then I'm settling into fine again. We're good. good. We're good. 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 good, good I'm good, wearing good. go-go boots at 10:30 in the morning, so I am wearing slacks that I just had to pull out. Quite literally, hundreds of nettle needles, something. My dog, as I think everyone knows at this point, has been a menace the last couple of weeks and has been demanding I go outside with her to go to the bathroom because I think something scared her in the backyard and now she doesn't want to go out to go to the bathroom by herself. And so I went out there today and she kept trying to leave to like get back inside. I was like, all right, I have to close the door. And I locked myself in my backyard. <laughs> I have three options. One is call you to just yeah, let me out of my key. backyard, <laughs> which you wouldn't need. You would just have to walk up and unlock oh, it. Like, yeah. <laughs> and the other option was climbing over part of the roof. But I was like, I don't know. I've been no. on the roof before, but I've never had to get down off the roof on the other side. And the other option was going out the fence, down the side of the house through the front yard, which normally would be a totally easy option. But there are weeds taller than me. And these specific weeds, when they're dying have like these little like needle things and barefoot also. So I'm working my way through in these nice slacks that I have. And I look down halfway through and I'm just like a fucking porcupine (laughs) on my legs. And I was like, damn. And so I spent like a good 20 minutes having to like hand pull them out because the lint roller wasn't strong enough and the vacuum wasn't strong enough. And they're just all over the floor in my house. not an incredible way to start the day. No, rough go, but we made it. Good. Yeah. Okay, well, I, as we know, quit my job two Mm -hmm. weeks ago. I'm not applying for full-time jobs. I'm back to freelancing. But I was thinking about this. We've been working girlies for the last decade. Uh What is your biggest red flag when you're applying for jobs for potential employers? Biggest red flag. I think it's a tie between, granted, there is a, le- a reason I'm leaving the industry entirely is because everything is a red flag for me. Yeah. But I think it's either words like guru, unicorn, yes. <laughs> et cetera. Because I'm like, I know you're going to make me for do a social eight media jobs guru. at yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I'm a writer. And they're like, all right, here's a graphic design job. I'm like, yeah. okay, whatever. Or anything that's about family. Oh, we're a family. <laughs> and I fell for that, like, in my, like, second agency job. It was, Yuck. like, a small, you know, five-person team. And they're like, we like family. I'm like, that's so cute and sweet. I would love to have a workplace where I am actually genuinely close to the people I work with. It's I like, like I want friends. to, yeah, be friends with people. But, yeah, there's a, there's a limit. It is friends, gossip girlies, <laughs> family. No, they are going to gaslight you into thinking anything you don't like about the company is a you problem and not something that's actually like needs to be fixed yeah so those are probably my two biggest red flags those are good ones Uh I think my two are the combination of flexible hours and fast-paced environment yes that specific combination is like you're about to hate your life do you want a fast-paced environment no that same job where it was like a small like family yeah I think I had to tell someone because we were writing a job description for a new hire. She was like, I really like, we want to hire winners. I'm like, what does that fucking mean? Yeah. It means you want someone who's not going to set any boundaries with their time. It means you want someone who's like always happy and enthusiastic about the work they do, which is unrealistic. I mean, it would attract people that she would work well with. 
Well, or people like me when I was younger and I just didn't realize that that was a red flag for anything. Yeah, I feel like when you're... People you can manipulate. Newer to working, Mm -hmm. you kind of like take things more for face value than like being able to read between the lines Mm -hmm. of like job descriptions. So that's one of mine. And then the other is like in an interview process Mm -hmm. when it's very clear that like the expectation is that you are really passionate about like whatever industry i absolutely love social media but even more than marketing or social media like what you're doing like a lot of times companies will have like a niche like we've worked for a lot of companies that are in technology which is really interesting like as a writer it's always fun to be in an industry that's like innovative and maybe not something you would read about otherwise AI or right. or like machine learning or like really interesting tech companies I like working for but it's not like my passion in life I don't get out of bed in the morning because of right. AI or any type of yeah. technology I'm marketing for Cyber and like security yeah I did a lot in healthcare and energy and those are kind of more causes that I felt yeah. strongly about. But even then, I'm like, that's not like my passion in life. No, my passion Relax. is to sit around with my friends and do a puzzle and drink eggnog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so I feel like when there's like not an understanding of this is a job. Yeah. I'm here because I have to work in order mm-hmm. to afford my life. Yeah. And I, like when I'm they interested. ask, is this your passion in life? And it's like, no. Is it your passion in life? Like, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyways, those are our red flags. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That we have learned from mm-hmm. just existing in the workforce. Yeah. Yikes. I'm Maggie. And I'm Sarah. And this, and this is, is Mad, Mad Woman, Woman in the, the Attic. Ho, 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 ho. Let's, Let's go, go, girls. I really had all the finger hand movements. Yeah, you did. You did a I lot did of it. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. <laughs> okay, follow-up question okay. to part one. Mm-hmm. What is your biggest ick either on like dating profiles or first couple of dates with someone as you're getting to know each other? You mean other than just them being a person? Being a man. <laughs> right. Red flag. A red flag. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really go on dates ever anymore. But I still am on Hinge sometimes. Hmm. I just saw one yesterday that was, I don't know if I would have come up with this. Like, it doesn't happen this that often, mm-hmm. like his specific wording, but it is like a vibe mm-hmm. that I've noticed on men's profiles. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I want a woman who doesn't need me and will fit into my life. And then lists like everything he likes to do and what he wants, a, that he wants a woman to do that with him. On the surface level, it could be like, okay, you want someone that's independent and likes the same things as you. Yeah. That's not crazy, but there was something about, like, the tone, and I've noticed this on guys' profiles. I want an NPC who needs nothing from me and will just be fun, and I don't have to put anything into it. I don't have to move a muscle. Mm -hmm. I don't have to, like, budge or compromise on anything. Mm -hmm. I just want you to do what I like. I want you to, like, be a golf cart girl. Do you know what that is? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which, no hate to the golf cart girls if you just like being on the golf course with your loved one. Yeah. Totally fine. Or if Mm -hmm. you like to golf yourself. But if you don't like golf and you're just going around in a golf cart just to, like, yuck. Yeah. Ew. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. Stop it. Go get a 
go get a hobby and and don't include your significant other in every single hobby you have that's, that's so the thing, weird it's like you can also just be like i have a lot of special interests yeah i really like video games and so i would like to spend many hours video gaming and someone and i would okay like someone that. who's like okay yeah either maybe they do like it but all of my video games from those part aren't multiplayer i yeah. want to do them by myself so i'm right. like Someone who wants to read or someone who also likes doing things alone yes. together or just doing things alone. Yeah. That's different than being like, you are required to participate in these yeah. 12 hobbies that I have. Yeah. And I won't weird. participate in any of yours. Well, and I've noticed men, a lot of times when they say they want an independent woman. Yeah. What they actually mean is that they want a girlfriend who is around only when they want them to be around yeah so when they need company or when they they need something they Mm -hmm. want a girlfriend who will be there yeah and show up and do whatever they want but they don't want to have to extend that to a woman Mm -hmm. or to someone they're dating Mm -hmm. and it's a very weird dynamic i don't really hear girls saying the same thing yeah And it was interesting, the last couple of dates I went on with one person, we had talked about that one-on-one. He had asked me, like, what do you look for in someone? And I was like, I really like someone who's independent. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of hobbies. I have a lot of interests. Like, I have a very Mm -hmm. full life. And I want someone who already has that. Yes. Because I tend to feel I don't really want you to just, like, insert yourself into everything I'm doing. I want you to have your own Mm personality and like your own stuff going on yeah there's like a tone difference yes so I saw that yesterday on someone's profile that Mm -hmm. liked me and I was like you yeah yikesy I don't like that my ick this is probably specific to me I know some people like really do like this immediate flirting I don't like coming on too strong coming on too strong immediate flirting immediately telling me you're like you're so like acting like I'm cute yeah Because something about cute specifically feels patronizing to me. Yeah. Not all the time, but there's a way that I think people will be like, my God, you're so cute. And it feels like they're looking for like this kind of little soft person. See, that doesn't bother me as much because I I know that I have sub energy. (laughs) Like I have very apparent bottom energy. (laughs) Like... (laughs) <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I am yeah. cute. Whatever. I like I can find it or I can just be like, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, anytime I, I hear someone talking about me being like cute or like trying to flirt with me as if I'm like gonna be like, oh thanks. Yeah. I'm like, I want to claw you with my yeah. very long, sharp fingernails. Another thing that I think is weird, people who clearly have an idea of you yes. in their head and they start just telling I think that's what the cute is. Yeah, it it's kind of like, like telling like, you who you are and what you yes. like. And and it's like, you literally know, no, like we've never even met. You literally yeah. know nothing about me. It mm. always gives me the impression that those are people who like the idea of a relationship more than an actual human yes. being. Yes, yes. You're picturing a version of me in your head yeah. and that's what you want. And I, I literally, you say that and that is, I think, why the phrase yeah. cute specifically like, comes off incorrectly for me because I, I don't feel like that is at all what I want to present or what I do present is cute specifically. Yeah. You're not like cutesy. Yes. And that's what I'm like, that is not me nor what I want to be. Stop it. Yeah. I'm not going to be that for you. I'm not going to be your romantic-y girlfriend. And I think the romantic side of it is also what comes with cute. You're expecting me to be like super sweet and super affectionate and all this. And I'm like, you are in for a treat. Yeah. 
but not. It's just mm-hmm. not you. Yeah. Yeah. I think when people kind of attribute things to you that aren't true, mm-hmm. it's a weird move. And also, I think it's like such a good opportunity if you are texting before a date, ask questions yeah. about each other and like really try to understand what that person likes and what their life looks like before you like waste time on a date. Mm-hmm. There was also my last one. So we can get into the story. There was a guy who had a very slutty profile who mm-hmm. connected with me recently. And his first message to me was something kind of slutty, you know, like, wow, you know how to be cute or something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah. You, yeah, I remember you saying Okay. This. And what? immediately, you're not going to be my boyfriend. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, sorry. I, I just was mm-hmm. like, okay. But so I replied with just a winky face because I'm like, whatever, if you're going to be a fuck boy, I can fuck boy harder than anyone. Right. Watch me. Bitch. Yeah. And so I sent him a winky face and then his response, he was so put off by it. And I was just like, don't be out here being a fuck boy and then be offended when people match your energy. It's what I love, 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 love when I can tell there's a guy, especially in a public place, a bar or whatever, comes up, is like, damn girl, something where it's like they're saying I'm hot or they're I'm yeah. or whatever. And I'm like, thanks. I know. And, and then it they're like people out no. so fast, and they're like, "How dare you know that you're pretty?" I'm like, "You, you agree? You clearly. deserve better." <laughs> yeah, it's like when when you're breaking up with someone, and they're like, "I hope you know you deserve better." And you're like, "I know." And it's like, "Yeah, that's why I'm fucking breaking up with you, <laughs> you absolute numbskull." There is like a specific type of guy that thrives off of like low confidence, low confidence, yeah. and their ability to then give someone confidence yeah. and the second it's like oh this woman doesn't need me for like, that I don't need you they're like oh I take it back I'm like you literally just said I'm pretty I know you're not lying guy messaged me last night and he said I love your fashion sense yeah and I thought that was a good that's a good one. alternative yeah that because that has more to do with your personality anytime someone's like you look really cool yeah because it, it's maybe about what I'm like my aesthetic but also just yeah. what I'm doing in my photos and what my interests yeah. on my like prompts are it's like still complimenting your appearance yeah and it's still giving like a flirty but it's not as sexualized it's not as like rapid yeah yeah so I thought that was a good entry point but I was laughing because he just was so nerdy yeah and he had a 1500 piece puzzle in one of his pictures and I was like yeah I just bought a puzzle last night I just had a very sad solo trip to Barnes and Noble at like 7 p.m last night I well I was busy I was like I would have gone with you it was a lovely it really cheered up my I really spirits. would like to go to Barnes and then and I was brought back down when I got home, but yeah. for unrelated reasons that I won't get into on a public platform. But <laughs> yeah, I had a really lovely trip to Barnes and Noble. And it was funny in the town I grew up in, mm-hmm. the Barnes and Noble was like a lot more convenient. So mm-hmm. I loved like going in the evening, especially in the winter. It was like yeah. so fun to go to Barnes and Noble. And around the holidays. Yeah. yeah. And they always have like the fun little gift activities yeah. and stuff. But it was interesting, the only people there, it was mostly people looking for anime. Is it manga? Manga. Manga. That section was like popping off. I had a really cute outfit on and it was mostly like young people looking for anime. But there there was like one man there who looked like, you know, of the dating age man. I was like, he was like, Girl, <laughs> 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 I was like, oh my god, whoa! 
he took all those TikToks about like, well, the dating apps aren't working. Time to go look mysterious in the yeah. bookstore, like very seriously. Is it working? <laughs> it truly was. I literally, when I was in there, I was like, am I doing that? Yeah. <laughs> Where I'm like, I'm, I'm, like I'm holding guilty. a puzzle in three books and I'm walking around in my cute outfit and Barcelona. Who's falling in love like, with me? Tell me now. <laughs> you all better be in love with me right now. <laughs> Uh, anyways, okay, should we get into the story? Yeah. Ho, 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 Story time. It's the turn of the 20th century, and New York City is bustling, luring people from all over the world with the opportunity for work, advancement, and the promise of a better life. In the heart of the city lies Greenwich Village. Here, that promise of a better life was fading into the smog of industrialism. In this hive of industry, let's focus on one building, the Ash Building. If you were to peer through a window on the eighth floor, you would see hundreds of people, mostly young women, almost all of them immigrants, toiling amidst the hum of sewing machines. The air is thick with the smell of oil and fabric. Beneath the mechanical buzz, we can hear voices speaking a dozen different languages. Evening sunlight streams weakly through the grimy windows, casting long, dark shadows that play across the walls and the faces of the workers, a true sweatshop. The day is drawing to a close. The workers are likely turning their thoughts to the home, the family or lover that waits for them, perhaps a rare Saturday night outing they have planned, or just the comfort of a bed after a week of long days. Rosaria Maltese takes a moment to work out her tired hands. Her family immigrated from Italy four years ago. She is only 14, but spends her days here in the factory to help support her family. She's seated next to Ida Brodsky, a Russian-born Jew who is a newer face in the factory. She has only been in the U.S. for nine months. She is 15. Beneath their feet lie scrap bins full to the brim with bits of fabric left over from each shirtwaist the girls have crafted. No one knows exactly how it started. The fire marshal could only make an educated guess. But at 4.40 p.m. on March 25, 1911, a spark ignited. A spark that, paired with the greed of the factory owners and the miserable safety standards of the day, would result in the deadliest industrial disaster in the city's history and one of the deadliest in the nation, claiming the lives of 123 women and 23 men. This is the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory disaster. Okay, background. The Triangle Waste Company is like the actual name of the factory. A waistcoat was like a bit of clothing that was just really popular at this time. Mm -hmm. I think at this point kind of declining in popularity, which is important. So it occupied the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the 10-story Ash Building on the northwest corner of Green Street in Washington Place. It was under the ownership of Max Blank and Isaac Harris. The factory produced women's blouses known as shirtwaists and employed about 500 workers Mostly young Italian so and Jewish. It's just a blouse for a woman? Yeah. Which one of these? Just like that classic, like... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, they produced shirtwaists, employed about 500 workers, mostly young Italian and Jewish immigrant women, who worked nine hours a day on weekdays, plus seven hours on Saturdays, earning, for their 52-plus hours of work a week, as little as $7 a week which is the equivalent of 191 a week in 2018 currency or 367 an hour. Not good. So the owners, Blank and Harris, already had a history of suspicious factory fires. So the Triangle Factory had already burned twice before in 1902. Their Diamond Waste Company factory burned in 1907 and 1910. 
it seems that <laughs> Blank and Harris deliberately torched their workplaces before business hours in order to collect on the large fire insurance policies they purchased. Oh. Which without was, people being in there, usually. Yeah, yeah, which was not uncommon in the early 20th century. So it is unclear if this was the cause of the 1911 fire, because obviously those normally didn't follow their MO. But it did contribute to the tragedy, because Blank and Harris refused to install a sprinkler system and take other safety measures in case they needed to burn down their shops again. So this was obviously made worse by Blank and Harris's notorious anti-worker policies. So when the International Ladies Garment Workers Union led a strike in 1909, demanding higher pay and shorter and more predictable hours, Blank and Harris's company was one of the few manufacturers who resisted hiring police and thugs to imprison the striking women and paying off politicians to look the other way. So classic industrial corporate greed. Yuck. So. The cause, then, what did cause it? We don't really know, is the answer. Despite the prohibition of smoking in the factory, it was common for workers to smoke cigarettes, mm. discreetly exhaling through their coat lapels to remain undetected. So that could have been the Wait, cause. Wait, they're lapels? <laughs> is that how... Lapels? The coat lapels? I love so much that you just coat said lapels. lapels. <laughs> <laughs> that's like when you're smoking weed before it was legal not that I ever did that <laughs> did you ever smoke weed and like blow it into like a, like a paper towel roll or like <laughs> you know that TikTok sound that's like do you want tea I have something something and chamomile and there was like chamomile did you just say chamomile he's like yeah he's like do you mean chamomile and he's like don't tell anyone it's like I'm going and he like speed calls other friends. This guy said chamomile. Lapples. Okay. Exhaling through their coat lapels <laughs> to remain undetected. So that could have been a cause. <laughs> a report yeah, makes sense. by the New York Times speculated that the inferno might have originated from the engines that powered the sewing machines. Mm -hmm. Just lots of flammable stuff. In a sewing factory. Yeah. Collier's published a series of articles highlighting a trend of deliberate fires in parts of the garment industry, especially when certain products went out of style or surplus stock accumulated as a means to claim insurance. The Insurance Monitor, a prominent publication in the industry, commented on the recent decline in shirtwaist popularity, noting that insurance policies in this sector were particularly prone to ethical risks. And although Blank and Harris... The owners had a history of suspicious fires at their business. This incident was ultimately not considered arson. And the fire marshal was like, it's probably a rogue cigarette, but maybe. So the tragedy itself, it unfolded very quickly. A bookkeeper on the eighth floor managed to alert employees on the 10th floor using a telephone. But there was no effective system to warn those on the ninth floor. Survivor Yetta Lubitz recounted that the first warning on the ninth floor coincided with the arrival of the fire itself. The building did have several exits, including two freight elevators, a fire escape, and stairways leading to Green Street and Washington Place. However, the Green Street stairway quickly became engulfed in flames. The door to the Washington Place stairway was locked, a measure to prevent theft and allow managers to inspect workers' purses. Other exits were always locked to thwart union organizers, the foreman who had the key to the stairway had already fled by another route. 
The fire escape was a makeshift solution allowed by city officials, not a mandated third up to code staircase. Can't be up to code when there's not a code to be up to. <clears throat> yeah. That makeshift escape was frail, possibly already damaged, and it collapsed very quickly under the strain and heat and the weight of the fleeing workers, resulting in around 20 people falling to their deaths just by trying to use that Oof. route. Elevator operators Joseph Zito and Gaspar Mutiaro heroically made trips to rescue people, but the intense heat eventually deformed the elevator rails. So the elevator was only to make able to make four trips before it just didn't work anymore. Yeah. Some women in that area who had been waiting for the elevator in desperation jumped into the elevator shafts, like trying to go down the yeah. cords, various things, which I, I think also caused more damage. But at that point it was already not usable. So yeah, they attempted to slide down the cables or land on the elevator car, but ultimately plunged to their death as well. The workers who were on the floors above the fire, including the owners, escaped to the roof and then onto adjoining buildings. The girls who did not make it to their stairwell or elevator were trapped by the fire inside the factory and began to jump from the windows to escape yeah. it. So the fire department responded promptly, but their ladders reached only the seventh floor, of course. Just the coincidence of that yeah. alone, that it's literally the floor beneath. When they arrived, the bodies of the already fallen victims complicated their efforts to approach the building. I read something about how bodies like had fell on hoses, so it was hard to even get water. Oh, yeah. At some point, a life net was unfurled to catch jumpers, but three girls jumped at the same time, ripping oh. the net. Man. There was one scene that people saw a man and a woman. They, this is so sad. They were kissing at the window before they both jumped to their deaths. Wow, that didn't make me tear up when I wrote it down, but that, that made me tear up a little. <laughs> so a heap of corpses lay on the sidewalk for more than an hour. The firemen were too busy. This is also so sad. It's all sad. The firemen were too busy dealing with the fire to pay attention to the people whom they were like, okay, yeah. these people are beyond saving. When things finally calmed down and firemen and policemen could pay attention to like the piles of bodies... They found a girl buried among the corpses who was still breathing, but she died two minutes after she was found. And so, like, she could have potentially survived. Lived. Yeah. Yeah. On the street, a large crowd watched 62 individuals um, jump or fall from the burning building. Louis Waldman, who later became a New York Socialist State Assemblyman, recalled the scene years later with vivid detail. This intro is so funny, but then it obviously gets terrible. One Saturday afternoon in March of that year, March 25th to be precise, I was sitting at one of the reading tables in the old Astor Library. It was a raw and pleasant day, and the comfortable reading room seemed a delightful place to spend the remaining few hours until the library closed. I was deeply engrossed in my book when I became aware of fire engines racing past the building. By this time, I was sufficiently Americanized to be fascinated by the sound of fire engines. Interesting. Just like the cutest intro, I think, yeah. of something that's about to be very terrible. Yeah. Um, just he's like, I just reading my book in the library, having yeah. a great time. Along with several others in the library, I ran out to see what was happening and followed crowds of people to the scene of the fire. A few blocks away, the Ash Building at the corner of Washington Place and Green Street was ablaze. When we arrived at the scene, the police had thrown up a cordon around the area and the firemen were helplessly fighting the blaze. 
The eighth, ninth, and tenth stories of the building were now an enormous roaring cornice of flames. Word had spread through the east side by some magic of terror that the plant of the Triangle Waste Company was on fire and that several hundred workers were trapped. Horrified and helpless, the crowds, I among them, looked up to the burning building, saw girl after girl appear at the reddened windows, pause for a terrified moment, and then leap to the pavement below to land as mangled bloody pulp. This went on for what seemed a ghastly eternity. Occasionally a girl who had hesitated too long was licked by pursuing flames and, screaming with clothing and hair ablaze, plunged like a living torch to the street. Life nets held by the firemen were torn by the impact of the falling bodies. The emotions of the crowd were indescribable. Women were hysterical. Scores fainted. Men wept as they hurled themselves against police lines. Ouch. Yeah. Within 18 minutes, it was over. Wow. Yeah. So by the end, 49 workers had burned to death or had been asphyxiated by smoke. 36 were dead in the elevator shaft. 58 died from jumping to the sidewalks. Two died later from their injuries. So this was a total of 146 people. Wow. Max Blank and Isaac Harris, the owners, survived, of course, by fleeing to the building's roof. So they were in the group that was able to kind of escape up through mm-hmm. the top. Now we can talk about what happened to them. <laughs> yeah, probably nothing. Yeah. So they were indicted for first and second degree manslaughter. And the trial began December 1911. Was that just for not having... Like sprinklers, like um, I don't know. Or was it because they said it wasn't arson, right? Yeah. Well, I think ultimately they concluded it wasn't arson, but I think oh, like trial. Yes, the the trial was I think because of the variety of different reasons ha- why so many people died. So during the trial, defense counsel Max Stewart undermined the credibility of a survivor named Kate Alterman, suggesting that she and possibly other witnesses' testimonies were memorized. Apparently, she was, like, asked a question several times and said the exact same thing every time. So they were like, oh, this is just a script. You mean preparing? Yeah. Like, of course, you would have prepared. Exactly. What you're going to say. So the prosecution alleged the owners knew the exit doors were locked, but this wasn't, like, conclusively proven. Like, they couldn't just prove that the owners knew that day. Yeah. Here, let's go look in your memory and see if you had this information. The jury acquitted them of manslaughter, but they were found liable in a 1913 civil suit resulting in, they had to pay out compensation to the victims' families. Mm -hmm. So already a low number, $75 per victim. What? Yeah. Which obviously is more today but i think if we look at the math of like seven dollars a week is like 150 ish today that's still not a lot less than ten thousand dollars i think quite a bit that's the quickest math i can do i can't i can't do that right now but i believe you altogether it's still not enough not nearly enough but for all 146 victims that's a decent chunk of change do you but think it had anything to do with their age because a lot of them were young. It's kind of like young and immigrants life and insurance. Women. Like your life insurance is usually more as you have more income and you're mm-hmm. like worth more to your family financially. Yeah, maybe. And I feel like for kids, they're mm-hmm. contributing financially, but it wouldn't be like as much. Right. Yeah, as an adult. Yeah, so they had to pay out seventy five for per victim. The insurance payout that they had gotten from the fire 
like, oh, hey, our building burned down. We need the insurance to pay us because we lost our workers. $400 per casualty. What? So over four times as much that they got that then they didn't pay even yeah. a fourth of that out to the victims. The fire helped unite labor and reform-minded politicians like progressive New York Governor Alfred E. Smith and Senator Robert F. Wagner, one of the legislative architects of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal agenda. The Workers' Union set up a march on April 5th of that year on New York's Fifth Avenue to protest the conditions that had led to the fire. It was attended by 80,000 people. Rose Schneiderman, a socialist and union activist, spoke at a memorial emphasizing the need for a strong working class movement. This sentiment was echoed by the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, ILGWU, (laughs) which saw political form as a solution. A committee on public safety was formed in the New York City. The New York City? A committee on public safety was formed in New York City, led by Frances Perkins, a witness to the fire. The committee, supported by Tammany Hall politicians Al Smith and Robert Wagner, who I mentioned earlier, pushed for labor reforms, including the 54-hour bill for shorter work weeks, which isn't really that much shorter, but I guess it's like... It was cutting it down to 54? Yeah, well, I don't know. I would need to look that up because, like, most of these people were already working 54. About that much, yeah. yeah. But Perkins would later become Roosevelt's Secretary of Labor. The New York State Legislature established the Factory Investigating Commission, chaired by Wagner and Smith. The commission conducted extensive investigations and resulted in 38 new labor laws. So these reforms modernized labor laws in New York, making it a leader in workers' rights. New regulations included improved building safety, fireproofing, and better working conditions. And I think this is where a lot of the laws we know about, like, don't block or lock the emergency exits and that kind of stuff. And I think regulated fire escapes Mm -hmm. came from. Following the fire, the American Society of Safety Professionals was founded. Harrison Blank continued their business endeavors with Blank once fined for locking a factory door. You know, a little baby fine, slap on the wrist. They eventually did close the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in 1918 and went their separate ways, but they're responsible for so many deaths and they just kind of got to keep going. Do whatever, yeah. NBD. Um, No consequences, really. Yeah. And the victims of the fire are buried all around. A lot of them were Jewish. Many bodies were taken to the Charities Pier, also called Misery Lane, um, for identification by friends and relatives. And they were, the bodies were across, like spread across 16 different cemeteries. 22 of them were buried by the Hebrew Free Burial Association in a special section at Mount Richmond Cemetery. Many of their tombstones refer to the fire. Six victims remained unidentified until Michael Hirsch, a historian, completed four years of researching newspaper articles and other sources for missing persons and was able to identify each of them by name. Yeah, so there is a, and I'll share it when we like share sources on Patreon, but there is like a full list. So those two that I named at the beginning for like setting the stage, they were two of the youngest on the list. I don't know if they actually sat together. That was for dramatic effect. Yeah. To kind of show you like the type of people that were there. But both of them, you can see their coroner's reports. Both of them were of the, in the group that burned. Mm-mm. So you can, it's They're really. Probably it's, close together then. Yeah. So it's really like, it's hard to read 
the handwriting on these coroner reports because the photos are rough, but also obviously it's yeah. scribble. Um, but you can see how basically each person died. It shows their age. It shows how long they've been in the States. The one Jewish immigrant girl was here for nine months. The other one I mentioned was had been here for four years, was born in Italy, came from a Catholic family. So there's like identifying information for all of them that you can find on this big list from Cornell University. So the six victims that were had been unidentified were buried together in the cemetery of the Evergreens in Brooklyn. And there's also like originally they had been interred elsewhere, but now they are underneath a monument to the tragedy, which is a large marble slab of a kneeling woman. So that's kind of the the burial situation. There's also a lot of like political cartoons that I found. Hmm. Political cartoons really play, I think, an underrated part in showing the political climate of the time mm-hmm. and any time. Yeah. And so there's one, um, there's a cartoon referring to the fire and it's one of the owners dressed in a suit of dollar bills holding a door closed while people behind it are are burning to death. Well, and it's interesting that the owners, I mean, it's devastating that the owners were paid out per victim because it's like really bizarre that insurance would be set up in a way where they would benefit more from employees dying Mm -hmm. than actually having the right protocols in place. Right. Yeah. They gained money off of these deaths. Yeah. They literally profited off of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of all the stories I've heard of like when like emancipation and how like people in the South were like compensated for the slaves they lost. But then all of these people who had been the ones who were enslaved were like, well, now we just, now what? Yeah. Yeah. People receiving compensation for terrible, terrible things that they did to other people is just disgusting. So frustrating that I feel like in situations like this, the worst case has to happen in order to have any grounds for enacting change. That is literally my discussion point was about how often women have to die or do the organizing, even just doing the hard work of organizing and fighting for ourselves to actually bring about any kind of change. Well, and it's like something so catastrophic has to happen. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that women were saying prior to this that the working conditions weren't good. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of like historical documentation. And this is in the middle of the women's suffrage movement. Like people were saying stuff. Like working conditions being terrible Mm -hmm. in the industrial period. And so it's like no one really cares and I to be honest I feel like a lot of times in these situations I really don't think that the people running these businesses really care Mm-mm. when these things happen about the the people that were impacted yeah clearly by their actions I really don't think they care I feel like it has more to do with optics mm-hmm. where like it becomes like a game of chess where yeah. it's like okay well now this huge very public catastrophic event has happened. It makes you look bad. Mm-hmm. And now you have to do the bare minimum so that right. optics mm-hmm. wise, you can kind of patch up your image, mm-hmm. um, whether it's like a political image or for customers, like mm-hmm. your brand. Yeah. Reputation. Reputation. And I really don't think it has anything to do with the people that were killed or impacted. No. It's always just like, Mm-mm. okay well now there's grounds it gives right. you leverage it's crazy that being treated poorly especially like in factories like mm-hmm. this there was 
a lot of illnesses that yeah. were linked to like the chemicals mm-hmm. that they knew about. It yeah. wasn't it wasn't like, oh, we didn't know. It wasn't just things like cancer. It was severe lung and skin diseases yes. that were very clearly linked to the chemicals in the factories. This is around I just looked up the date of like the radium girls mm-hmm. who yeah. were like putting radium on their teeth because no one knew. Yeah. It was like around that time, 1917 to 1935 was when the radium stuff was happening. Yeah, it's just kind of gross. And also, I think it's important that we say we have laws now in the United States that protect a lot of workers who Mm -hmm. work for these kinds of organizations, but there are a lot of countries that don't. Yes. And this is still something that's happening. Yeah. And significantly fewer protections for, because I was looking up other things happening in this time, and it was the middle of like the women's suffrage movement. But the women's suffrage movement at first was very much middle and upper class white women. Mm-hmm. There ended up being quite a lot of racism within that movement because it was like, well, black men got the right to vote before white women got the right to vote. And then there was like a lot of yeah. bitterness and yeah. backlash from the white suffragettes. To where when they finally did get the right to vote, they hadn't fought as equally as hard for like also black women to vote. Right. And so... Which I think is still the case in feminism. Yes. And yes, in general. There was, I think, a lot of movements at this time within labor as well. But it was these factories where they were immigrants, children of immigrants. Yeah. And I think at least in the United States and really in any country that has better worker laws Mm -hmm. I feel like the exception is always undocumented immigrants who have no protections Mm -hmm. at all and it's hard because it sounds like a lot of these immigrants were documented yeah immigrants and workers many of them had become U.S. citizens but that's in the U.S. still like agriculture workers are like a huge Mm -hmm. gap in workers rights where they're paid very unfairly and the conditions mm-hmm. are terrible and the hours aren't regulated and yeah. they can be too young to be mm-hmm. working and it's just yeah. and still if an they issue. get injured on the job, they're fucked. It's not just protections. Like you have no rights and you can't even unionize yeah. to get any leverage. I feel like mm-hmm. especially in labor jobs, the only leverage you have with the union is numbers. Right where you can have an economic impact on a huge business if all of you refuse to work. Right. And that's really the only leverage that unions mm-hmm. have. That's why they unionize. Yeah. Uh, because if you're just a mm-hmm. cog yeah. in a machine, it doesn't really matter if you're like, right. I'm going to quit. Yeah. We're in a more high paying mm-hmm. job like in fields we're used to working in. Right. You have a much higher impact if you threatened to quit or whatever Mm -hmm. and you can have more of an impact as an individual where in this type of job well there's skilled labor but I feel like all labor is skilled to be honest but Mm -hmm. it is a lot harder to have leverage as an individual yeah Yeah. virtually have none Mm -hmm. this reminded me of that fire that happened recently in New York City Mm -hmm. where there's still because the buildings are old it's it's difficult to get them up to code yeah it was an apartment building though oh it was because there's laws around like having space heaters Mm -hmm. because it starts fires in New York so often but this building like didn't have working heat for residents Mm -hmm. so a lot of residents had space heaters and then there was all of these issues with this apartment building that made it unsafe Mm -hmm. for people to get out during this fire and it started a similar conversation around like living conditions in New York City yeah and it also made me think of 9-11 with people jumping yeah 
I watched a documentary about 9-11. It was explaining a lot of the witnesses who weren't necessarily in one of the towers when it came down, but might have been in like that big lobby Mm -hmm. section or like in one of the connected buildings. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that one of the worst parts of it that they remember is hearing people hitting the roof of the lower buildings. Yeah. But you almost like lose your sanity when you start burning to death because it's so painful. You'll just Mm -hmm. do anything Anything to to just die quicker. And and I don't think it's like an intellectual process where you're like, well, I'd rather fall to my death than burn. It's like you just completely lose your rational thought when you're burning Mm -hmm. uh, because it is so painful. Mm-hmm. And that's why people often jump. It's not like a yeah. thought through process. Mm-hmm. I have thought about that. Like when you burn your hand on something, you pull away as quick as you yeah. can. It's not even like a thought process. Yeah, just get away from that. Yeah. It's like even if your mental a, protection a of yourself drop on is side of to get away from it. Yeah. And yeah, it's the, um, it's the biological yeah. flight response. Yeah. But it's always sad to watch yeah. when something like this happens. Mm-hmm. And the. I mean, I just think of all the fires, too, like the Great Chicago Fire, the London Fire. And I kind of forget why I've read about a lot of these recently. It always freaks me out. It is terrifying. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially the ones where you hear about the Chicago Fire just literally sweeping. Yeah. Like leveling an entire city. And there was one when I was in Amsterdam in the spring. I think they were talking about all of these major cities that have been around for so long yeah i feel like have experienced some kind of massive or this just happened in hawaii monumental fire yeah i don't think there's like a pleasant way to die but i do feel like burning burning to death yeah just being so panicked in your last moments Mm -hmm. i guess it doesn't really matter at the end of the day but there's just something so disturbing about knowing that you're just panicked and trying to get out of this situation and can't one of the things i think about most often when I listen to like true crime stories in particular is what the people were feeling in their last moments. Yeah, in your last moments, it disturbs me so much. Yeah. I hate thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of why I love mediums. I know we joke about that and it's so silly, but I Yeah, some sense of like closure and Well, I love, there's two mediums that I really like that are pop culture mediums. Mm -hmm. And I think the most interesting readings that they do are with people who died very violently and were Mm -hmm. like very, uh, probably afraid in the last moments of their life. And that that's something that really like bothers their loved ones. Mm -hmm. And that that's something that they process in their Mm -hmm. afterlife. It's something that they come to terms with and that they're like, I'm good. I'm okay. Yeah. That didn't make the rest of my afterlife traumatic. Yeah. You know, it was like a moment that was terrible and mm-hmm. they're usually at peace. Mm-hmm. It's like a trauma that they carry with them. Yeah. That ultimately they're okay. Afterwards. Yeah. I th- always think that's really interesting with mediums. Mm-hmm. On a sillier note, <clears throat> my high school that I went to, I went to a big public high school. Shout out yeah. to McDowell. Go Trojans. Um, that was our mascot. Which you know, you went to like a slutty public school when your mascot was a Trojan, so they're just like, that's like as public school school. as it gets. We were Mustang, and our mascot was named Mustang Sally. I don't know what that is. Mustang Sally! Oh. (laughs) Oh, that one. (laughs) I don't know it. But my high school. So it was two buildings that were connected by an outdoor walkway, which is hilarious Mm -hmm. in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is one of the coldest, snowiest towns in the United States. (laughs) 
<laughs> so it was a two building campus and ninth and 10th grade were in the new building and 11th and 12th grade were in the old building. We called it traveling. You'd have to walk between the two buildings mm -hmm. for, you know, like all the music classes were in mm -hmm. the new building. And there was like extracurriculars that were in different mm -hmm. buildings that you'd have to travel between yeah. buildings. Anyways. The old building was widely known to be not up to code. Yeah. And it was just like a frequent joke that if the building caught on fire, we would literally all just die in there because the cafeteria was in the basement. Uh huh. There was an exterior door, but it went to a courtyard. Yeah. There was no exit. Like you couldn't get out that oh, way. You'd be trapped in the courtyard. You'd have to go to these two staircases. But mm -hmm. we had a really high student population based on when the building was built. Yeah. yeah. Anytime all of us had to take the staircase, oh. you're waiting in the staircase for 15, 20 minutes. Anytime we had a fire drill, we'd all be standing in the staircase for 20 minutes. Like, well, we're dead. Like, <laughs> Thanks. We're dead. What use is it a would drill? get so congested that we'd be like stuck in these staircases. Yeah. And it was any time between classes, it was so crowded. Mm -hmm. And there was an arson incident. <laughs> and I was at school. It was after school. And I happened to be there working on a project with a couple of my friends yeah. and we were in the library. So I was there after school. I remember we all evacuated and it was fine. Yeah. But it was one of the kids, something had happened to him that day and he set fires around the school, six different fires or something. Mood. My crime of choice in episode one was arson. <laughs> and I think one of them was like worse. It was in the auditorium mm -hmm. and like it caught on something and that yeah. one was bad. The rest of them were pretty contained. But we were all like, there was people yeah. in the building, you know, but it was a small enough amount where you could just run out of the building and it was fine. Yeah. But I'm sure it's the exact same situation now. We would just joke about it, but it was like, we legitimately would die. Yeah. They knew what the start to finish time was to evacuate the building. Yeah. And it was like probably 20 minutes or more, which is not up to code. I can't, yeah. I can't remember like what exactly the details are. Yeah. We'd all be standing in the staircase yeah. with the fire alarm. We'd be like, well, we're dead, guys. Yeah. This is crazy. Rip. We also didn't have air conditioning. It was like so janky. <laughs> uh, I love public school though. I loved going to public school. I never did. It was a character building and exercise. My little plaid skirts. I went to private school for two years and I hated it. I loved public school. It was just so silly. I liked, I mean, you know, I loved my childhood as I've mentioned yeah. before. And even at private school. I mean, we had lifers that I think I took a picture on graduation day of five of us that had been in this yeah. there since kindergarten with our old kindergarten so teacher. Yeah. That's especially wild for me because I went to so many schools growing up. Mm -hmm. I literally can't even picture And I literally went to that. the same one from kindergarten to senior year. I cannot picture that. I don't know how many schools I went to, but it was a lot. Yeah. I mean, I moved every year or two until I was like 12. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know the girl I sat next to at graduation in high school. She had three kids. That's weird. I don't remember who I sat next to, but I knew everyone. My class was so small that on graduation day, each graduate had like a mini video about them. Our graduation was like, bada bing, bada boom. And it was ours. Yeah. Well, all my friends, like other than the people I went to school with, went to Allen High, which is like, I think one of the biggest schools in the nation. Yeah. Definitely the biggest school in Texas from what, what I Dallas, know. Like the Dallas area? Yeah, yeah, Allen. Huge. Yeah. 
So anyways, but my school caught on fire. Why was I there when it happened? It was mm-hmm. such a weird day. Oh, and that poor kid, he was a little disturbed and ended up going to juvie or something. Oof. Anyways. <laughs> a wild time to be alive. Yeah. Uh, do you want to play Would You Rather? Yeah. Or do you, is there anything else we should discuss? I do feel like the young... It just makes me so bummed that it was young girls. So And young. also there's something so sad about it. it was so hard to get to the U.S. Yes. Uh, like to emigrate. Mm-hmm. And that t- it's still hard. Yeah. And most of them probably supporting their families. Yeah. here's But to go through all of the effort to get to America names. and then have that happen would yeah. just be terrible. Or to be the parents of some of these people who brought them. Yeah. For a better life and then this is what happens yeah you know? the men like, waiting at the line crying oh. it's probably their dads and husbands God, yeah yeah and the conditions are so terrible to begin yeah. with i always think about your fingers like sewing and have mm-hmm. you ever had like a sewing phase oh yeah it's so i made a terrible skirt and wore it to church Ugh, nice your fingers hurt so bad uh-huh. and i'm in a knitting phase right now it's like it oh really my embro- i embroider all the time now your body you gets sore a lot to just do like that really mechanical small movement mm-hmm. it's so painful i think about doing that every single day for that many hours straight yeah yeah in general the conditions obviously were bad but it also just like nothing was taken care of so these scrap piles were several months worth of scraps yeah of course the fire is going to spread yeah as fast as well, it yeah, did that much fabric dry. yeah and like Fire the around. oil to keep the the machines lubricated yeah. everything around them was flammable yeah and there's a lot of chemicals mm-hmm. i don't know if they would be cleaning them there the, yeah. the garments but there's a lot of like dye, dye yeah. chemicals yeah mm-hmm. that even just the working conditions would be terrible i feel like the equivalent of this type of corporate greed Today, I mean, there's so many examples of it, but yeah. I feel like specifically climate mm-hmm. change. It always makes me think of like, you know, the smog in London. Yeah. Where people were just like, I know, what could it be? We have no idea. Oh, and it's like, yeah. yes, you do. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. And I feel like it's the same thing where this corporate cutting corners, maximizing mm-hmm. profit for a few. And it's like, we'll literally burn the world down yeah. before we stop doing that. And yeah. that's happening. And it's just like... Okay, well, <laughs> what can you do? I guess go to space. That's Leave the, the world you destroyed. It's crazy. I was talking to someone last night. This has always confused me in books and in movies and in real life. Villains. I'm like, God, it seems so exhausting to be the villain. Why do you care about anything yeah. so much that you would? waste your life away trying to gain this power. You know, I think of just even the most straightforward, simple ones. Fucking Sauron and Saruman in Lord of the Rings. And it's like, why? Oh, just take a nap. Like, And then I'm like, that's not realistic in a lot of ways. In my head, when I'm thinking through these things and reading about these villains and like these big epics, the villains in Dune, the villains in Foundation. And then it's like, I look at real life and I see people like this and I see people the wealthiest people in the world and all the terrible terrible things they're doing and it's like yeah your life is already so short yeah and I just of course I want a home I want income enough to survive like I want enough of money and power to just be able to like live the life I'm living right now yeah and it will never make sense to me that people like create so much crave so much more it's like, than stop. like just what 
you know, I have right now. I always think it's crazy to look at aerial shots of like really rich people's homes. How can you have all of that and not be like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. It's actually wild to think about. And the staffing that you have to have just to be wealthy. Yes. Just to keep maintain a house like that. Yeah. It's just like simplify your life choices. Yeah. Like, this and is crazy. Like a level. We were telling one of our friends, you should get someone to clean your house. Like, like you're working you crazy have, hours. Yeah, you're working crazy hours. You have the money to do it and to pay someone fairly to do it. But to have to fully staff your personal life. Yeah. If I take a step back, here's a question. If you had like Kim Kardashian's houses, it's like chill. If you had not unlimited necessarily, but like a modest fortune, a lot of people are always like, I'd buy such a cool house, blah, blah, blah. But I'm the same as you. I'm like, I don't want this massive I don't want a mansion. I would hire a personal chef. That is like the indulgent thing I feel I would invest yeah. in if I did have a fortune. Cause I'm like, I hate cooking. I would like to eat better. And I would like to eat stuff that I enjoy. Personal chef. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. That's my like indulgent thing that if I did have the funds, I would. I would definitely, with like my last income was high enough to have someone like come clean my house. I was going to before I got laid off. Because that's the thing I struggle to keep up with the most Mm -hmm. and I just don't like. Right. But to be honest, like. (laughs) I can't imagine wanting. There's like a, an amount of money where I just, and I think it's different for everyone, but I feel like there's just an amount where it really doesn't matter after that point. Yeah. And I was making a really good income and I'm still driving a 20 year old car. I don't know. Yeah. I think that there is no guardrails. Unbridled. Yeah. On greed for so many people to not be able to live and then have Bezos type people outliving. LA is a great example. It's like there's a water shortage and it's literally because of the small percent of insane properties and the amount of water it takes to water a lot run those homes yeah or the amount of electricity it takes to run those homes most communities don't have that amount of really Mm. ridiculously wealthy people and it's like okay now there isn't enough electricity for everyone you know how we were talking about i think you and i but also just in general the commentary around the last of us Mm-hmm. And how this feels like one of the most realistic ways we could go. Yeah. Our own failure that led to global warming, that led to this newly evolved I mean, that species. stuff is happening. But like, there's also this show. I mean, that stuff is like already happening. Yes. Yeah, that's what it's, I'm saying. And everyone knows it. I had someone in my life recently who was very critical if I didn't recycle every mm-hmm. single little thing. And it's like, I'm sorry, but if you think- We are not the problem. That- Me not recycling Mm -hmm. one can is uh, scratching the surface. Yeah. You are so stupid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, that's not a reason to not recycle or not Right, or like buy sustainable But it's like, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. This is not my fault. Yeah. I have tried really, really hard to be as intelligent as I can about where I buy my stuff. And I always like say it's greed again. Like right now I bought a few things from Amazon because I don't have a job. So I'm like, okay, this is its phase of life where I'm like, I need something. I'm going to buy it from a place that I can afford it. So it's not people like that. It is the greed of fashion influencers who do a massive $1,000 haul from someplace like Shein. That's, I think, where it frustrates me the most. You have the money to be smarter about where you put your money. It's not that you deciding to put your money elsewhere is going to save the world. Obviously, it's not. But it's not like you and I being 
here having a can that's like, oh, shit, I threw it in the trash, didn't rinse it out, I can't recycle it. Yeah. It's like a, you are actively choosing to participate and fulfill your need Yeah, to consume things that don't need to be consumed. I also think it's like a little more insidious than mm-hmm. that with social media because yeah. when people do those giant fashion hauls, mm-hmm. what happens when you have thousands and thousands or millions of followers and you're just constantly seeing these people that are buying clothes all the time? Mm-hmm. Where they're being gifted those things, yeah. but you're seeing people have new, 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 yes. new at a at a cadence that we have never seen in the history of no. the world. It used to be on cribs, yeah, and to be cribs, where it's like, oh, you have this crazy closet. Yeah. And now with social media, you'll see someone who is much more like you. Yes. This person is much closer to my tax bracket and they converted a bedroom in their house into a closet because they didn't have enough space in their giant walk-in closet. Yeah. It's this amount of consumerism and and there's a level of smoke and mirrors. No one is actually shopping that much. No. These people are being gifted these things by brands for a marketing campaign. And the purpose of it is to subconsciously convince people that that's a normal amount to shop, Mm -hmm. that that's a normal amount of clothing to have, that you need to be refreshing your closet monthly, seasonally, or that like if you buy a lot of cheap things, you're spending more money at the end of the year. You're spending more money on these like cheap clothes that you're not even going to wear. In 2017, during a manic phase, (laughs) I'm pretty sure looking back, I went minimalist or whatever, which... That's around when I met you. Yeah. I got rid of so... Because a lot of my purchasing was very much, I need something to feel good. Yeah. Because I was so sad (laughs) and unwell. Shopping was one of my um, unmedicated bipolar habits. Yeah. I ended up just like getting rid of so much stuff. And I'm not style-wise or like house-wise minimalist anymore by any means. Like an aesthetic. But the thing that I carried with me from that is that I ultimately spent much less money. Oh yeah. Buying things that I'm like, oh, I mean, this is a recent purchase, but it's straightforward. It can go with a lot of things. I'll probably wear it for a long time. Yeah. It's trendy right now ish, but it's also a staple. Yeah. Spending my money on fewer things that are, yes, absolutely individually more expensive. Yeah. And this obviously is not for everybody. This is very specific to my situation. I think the situation of a lot of people who are in like my life style bracket. (laughs) But it was, I spent so much less money in the long run because I bought things from sustainable companies where like I already felt way better about where my money was going. They're better quality for sure. Better fabrics. Yes. It's not all this plastic stuff. Like, it's also better fabrics just for your body and your skin. And there's middle ground. Yes. Like, I am a big Madewell jeans person Mm -hmm. where it's like, that's not the most expensive jean you can buy. Right. Definitely not the most affordable jean you can buy. Right. But I have Madewell jeans that I've worn five times a week for three years that are literally like the day I bought them. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) it's like, I used to go to, and I still buy some things. I didn't buy stuff from Target for a really long time. I buy some things from Target now. But I used to go to like H&M and and Forever 21. And it's like these things that would fall apart. A lot of times people get into this type of discussion and a lot of the people who are in a relatively similar 
financial situation yeah. as me and the response is I just don't have the money for it. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you see these people go out and spend a lot of money on multiple, multiple items that aren't going to last very long. Right. And I think that's where I'm kind of like, you you could do this. I feel like I've found a more like middle ground approach where I think I definitely went like way too minimal minimalist mm-hmm. for a few years where I just especially when I first started working from home, I didn't buy any clothes. I, w- I mean, the purpose of that is I was paying yeah. off my student loans. So yeah. I just like literally in all areas of my life, mm-hmm. just like stopped spending money. And I yeah. did pay off my student loan. And for me, it was worth it. Yeah. But it got to a point where like, I just never really felt good about myself mm-hmm. because I didn't have any clothes that were like, trendy or things where it was like, this is kind of like a special occasion outfit. Yeah. And so the happy medium I found recently is that I will really invest in more staples mm-hmm. where like the things that I'm going to have for years and years and years, they're not trendy. They're like jeans, jackets, shoes, mm-hmm. base layers, basic things. I spend more money on those yeah. things so that they last longer. I can get a lot of use mm-hmm. out of them. They're like really high quality. Mm-hmm. I will have them for a long, long time. Yeah. And then I'll kind of treat myself with trendier yeah. pieces. And I try to get those cheaper. Like I don't spend a ton of money on stuff that's trendy. Mm -hmm. Like I have these black cargo jeans on that I got at Target. I think they were like 25 or 30 bucks, which is like a really cheap jean. The Mm -hmm. material is really cheap. They're probably not going to last that long, but they're a really trendy style. Yeah. So I'll mix in trendier things where it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, this makes me feel fun. It it makes it feel like I'm trendy. Like we're both, I would say pretty trendy girls. Mm -hmm. I like to like have unique pieces and things that are kind of out there and yeah. fun and I'm not oh, yeah. gonna love this for years. All my tiger stuff recently. Yeah like yeah. I'm not gonna love this a year from now but mm-hmm. it's a little cheaper and I don't buy a ton of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I buy just enough where I can mix it in with my basics yeah. and it's like okay this is fairly affordable. I don't have to buy those staples very often right you know and yeah so I think it, it still saves me a lot of money but like when I was really scaled back, it was like, I just felt really not ugly. <laughs> yeah. I just felt really like I wasn't putting any personality or mm-hmm. energy into my appearance at all. Yeah. I think that's where I'm at now. I think when I first started, it was um, cathartic to have so little because yeah. I was in such a chaotic place in life. Yeah. It was like psychologically let's pare this down. Let's control this. Let's not have to put a lot of thought into what I'm wearing, but I still feel good in jeans and basics. Like I liked the way I looked in those things. And that I think was the shift I had to make in the last two years where I'm like, none of this feels good anymore. It's not good for me to feel just all the time. So where is that kind of happy medium? Because obviously no ethical consumption under capitalism, but how can I be like relatively responsible, not only with my money in general, like, am I putting it to things that'll last? Am I also putting it to companies that are good? Yeah. We're going to have just basic practices that are yeah, that not the worst option. And not driven that. by greed. And I yeah. think that's the main thing. Greed or like the keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. Because I think that whether you're on this side of a tax bracket or this side, when greed comes into play, that's when it gets bad and dangerous when it's like I I need to satisfy this right now and I don't care what it takes to get it yeah I think that's where it becomes dangerous for anybody to get into that kind of mindset Mm -hmm. it's the mindset of greed and consumerism that I think is the dangerous part that just people get wrapped up and they they kind of conflate the need for more to keep up with the influencers whatever 
with like, a, well, this is going to be good for my mental health. And I think being able to find a line between like what makes you happy and what feels good and what makes you feel good about where you spend your money is different than this is like an instant gratification. I'm going to feel really good about this for a few weeks for our mental health. That's also like a really important line to find. So it yeah. doesn't because that can blur, I think, very easily. Yeah. One of the reasons like I'm not a big city girl, I have no desire to live in a big city. And I mm -hmm. feel we are both people that are young and hip and single yeah. and can pick up and move anywhere we want. And it's mm -hmm. like, why do you live in Oklahoma City? It's affordable. It's affordable. And it's also I have lived in bigger metropolitan areas before. And I also have family that lives in bigger metro areas that mm -hmm. I visit fairly often. My in-laws used to live in San Diego. My family lives in like Denver. Colorado Springs. I was maybe 10 and my family lived in DC two separate times. My family, we all kind of felt like it was the most unhappy time of our entire lives. So much traffic, so much competition. Like the schools were so competitive to a point where it was just like, what are we doing guys? Relax. Yeah. It was like, what is the point yeah. of this? But you get really wrapped in, wrapped up in it if everyone around you, and that's where I think social media gets really dangerous with this, mm -hmm. is like if everyone around you is paying that much for a one-bedroom apartment, Yeah. if everyone around you needs the nicest clothes. And one thing I thought that was crazy anytime I would visit San Diego is like everyone has really high-end cars. Yeah. Like really high-end. Nobody mm -hmm. has Hondas. Yeah. If that's all you ever see, it's really easy to get into this headspace of like, well, that is just normal. Yeah. That's what I need. That's It changes your necessity, like yeah. your bare minimum. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you live in a place that's a little more down chill, to <laughs> down to earth, you have a bit more, okay, yeah. I don't really need that. Like yeah. I can have a lower cost of living. I can have a 20 year old car. Right. And it's just not that big of a deal. No one yeah. is really like judging me for it. And it's just kind of like, yeah, whatever, who yeah. cares? And you can afford a little more, you have a little more flexibility. And yeah. I think I just have no desire to live in an area where I'm always going to feel like nothing I have is enough. And yeah. you're always trying to get to the next thing, yes. the next big job, the next big mm -hmm. promotion. I want to be able to afford this car. I want to be able to mm -hmm. afford this designer clothes and like and be able to eat at this ridiculously expensive restaurant. You're just always going to the next to the next yeah. to the next and you're never happy with what you have. And I think... When you're not trying to constantly just chase, 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 yeah. I feel like what happens is that the times you do get to do something feel really special. Yeah. When I finally got to replace my car that yes. served me so well for a decade, yeah. I got to be like, oh my gosh, yeah. I, I get to new, a new car. That's so exciting. And it's because it's for me and I'm excited about it. And I've wanted this kind of car for yeah. a while. It's just a Jeep. Yeah. You know, like it's not like it's like a... Yeah, a, a G-Wagon or anything, but it becomes something that's exciting. Like yeah. going out to a really nice restaurant is yeah. exciting. Not because you're like, I have to eat at places like these or I have to get this kind of car or it's just like, whatever. It's just like, yeah. I felt that way about having a porch because I've mm -hmm. lived in rentals for a long time and I had... I was making the most money I've ever I made. I said a Porsche real quick. I was like, no, what? not a Porsche. A front <laughs> a <porch>. patio. <laughs> an outdoor living space. And I just always felt really sad like about the apartments I lived in. A lot mm -hmm. of them, even if we had like an, a porch or like a patio, it was never very nice. Yeah. The rent I pay here for this area 
It's not crazy. It's mm -hmm. higher end. Yeah. For like any other area for anyone I know where they live. It's, it's so, cheap. so cheap. Yeah. And I have a really nice home and I have this beautiful porch where I can mm -hmm. sit out and I can have friends over and I have enough room for a lounge type of couch out there. I literally, that was like a huge moment for me where yeah. I was like, it's not like luxurious, but it feels luxurious. This is something so small where like it adds so mm -hmm. much happiness to my day-to-day -day life. And like yeah. maybe I'm paying a little bit more in rent to have that outdoor space. And for me, it's, yeah, I, it's worth it. Yeah. I would rather have my 20-year-old car and never replace mm -hmm. it and be able to have that porch. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like what are you... It's knowing what is important to you. Yeah. Yeah. That was a huge... Actually, when I first got married, that was like a huge conversation we had. We really butted heads about money for mm -hmm. a long time where we just had very different perspectives on like finances. Yeah. And it took a lot of like sitting down and really getting aligned on like what are our shared priorities mm -hmm. of where we want to spend our money because not everything overlapped and it was like being willing to kind of let go of the things that didn't overlap mm -hmm. and really put joint energy into the, the priorities that did yeah and it's been fun to be single and embrace the things do, that yeah. didn't overlap that I had to give up for a while, yeah. which I think is like, like a fun a normal, Yeah, like a normal, yeah, yeah, I put a lot more money into my house because that was something that wasn't important to my ex. Yeah. And he would always kind of like tease me for wanting to decorate my house. And I feel like when you're in a relationship, that is something you kind of have to do to like yeah. respect the other person. If you're mm -hmm. sharing finances, you really have to be willing to be like, okay, if this isn't a priority for you, like we're each going to have to make some sacrifices. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't want to admit that that's part of being in a relationship. Yeah. Anyways, now we're just rambling. Okay, let's go into our segment today, which okay. is Would You Rather? Okay. And it's focused on would work. Would you rather? Since we did a lot of like workers' rights mm -hmm. talk today. Okay, so would you rather have a rote, repetitive, not super intellectual job mm -hmm. and make a livable middle-class wage mm -hmm. or would you want to make a ton of money like fuck you money retire early but you hate your job how early are we talking as far and as it's really mentally emotionally taxing that's the specific you know like retire at 50 oh then i do 45 100 no unless i could like literally retire in the next two years yeah no I'd rather do. I feel very work. conflicted about this one because to be honest, some of like the happiest jobs I've had have been mindless. Yeah. Where it's not that it's the easiest yeah. job, but it's, I'm not taking this home with me. Yeah. It's not like creatively zapping, I think, especially yeah. as creatives. I feel like that's important to me is like why in the type of setting I was doing marketing in was so hard. Creative I training. have nothing left. Yeah. I remember there was one month at another agency job where I was having to do a lot of data entry and I was listening to my podcast nice. while I did it. And I was like, oh, this is, yeah. yeah, I don't have to like turn my brain on all that much. I love, it was really physically taxing and I was making like, closer to minimum wage so I think that's where it gets difficult is yeah. like a lot of those jobs don't pay you're less. sacrificing comfort. quality of life yeah where it's yeah. like you're really not making a wage that allows mm. you to have any financial freedom yeah but I loved working at a grocery store mm -hmm. it had its moments it's not like an easy yeah. job it was very physically taxing but mm -hmm. it was really mentally calming it was like towards the end of college I had a lot of stress a lot going on it was like mm -hmm. a really demanding time in my life and I felt like I could go work at the grocery store and it was just brain yeah. off. 
When I was working at the bar over spring and summer, though that was that way. Yeah. I think I even said, I am so physically tired after I get off work at this job, but I go to Mental sleep energy. because I'm not thinking about it tomorrow. It's always a trade-off. Like I yeah. think those jobs are often very physically demanding mm -hmm. and the pay is a lot lower where like you were saying, if I could retire like, in the next five to 10 years and just have as much money as I needed for the rest of my life, I would work a job I didn't like. Five years max. I would not go 10. Really? Yeah. No. I think I always worry about dying young. And I think that specifically in these kinds of question fake scenarios that yeah. we don't actually have to choose between is because I'm like, well, I, I might die before then. I want to live opposite. now. I just, I mean, I'll eat my words. Yeah. When, if I die young, but I No, you won't. You'll always, be dead. I'll be dead. I'll contact the medium I and you'll be like, I'm eating my words. I'm <laughs> eating my words. But I have always felt I'm going to live be like 108. And I don't want to because I know everyone else is going to be dead and I'll just be <laughs> rotting somewhere. Oh, yeah. Okay. Next, would you rather? Would you rather do sex work for one year mm -hmm. and never have to work again? Yeah. Live comfortably or be an executive assistant for the next 50 years? Sex work. And it's the same amount of money, but for one year of sex work, sex for 50 work, years. Of, I feel I, the same way. I wouldn't enjoy it. I applaud all the sex work she's and they's out there who do that and do it well yeah. and enjoy it as like their source of income. I would not enjoy it for various reasons, but if it's just a year. Yeah. Yeah. I, would I feel do that. like there's a variety of types of sex work. Yeah, I'd be a dominatrix. Where you could be like camming with the or purpose doing something of that's like a little... Does feet photos count? Yeah, that's sex work. Okay. So yeah. I feel like you yeah. have more autonomy where you can yeah. say, this is what I'm comfortable with. This is some what I'm not comfortable with. I feel like being an executive assistant can in some ways, especially if you're working for a man, can, yeah. can be really demeaning. Yeah. And you don't necessarily have the leverage to say, this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And this is what I'm not doing. And mm -hmm. so I think I also would choose sex work because you can just do, sorry, mom, you can just do like no contact sex work. Is yeah. The thing. Yeah. Sorry, mom. <laughs> I don't know if I would want to be having sex with people. Because... Yeah. If that's an option to not. Yeah. Then that's perfect. Or like, isn't stripping considered sex work? Dancing. Yeah. Burlesque. Could be, yeah, burlesque. There's a lot of options that I feel like could be really empowering in the right conditions where you can really pick your... Pick your poison. Pick your poison, yeah. yeah. And if you're going to make the same amount of money, I would rather do that for a year and then just be retire. Yeah. Okay. Would you rather work on a railroad or in a sewing factory? So these are both physically hard labor jobs. Aesthetically? Bad conditions. Railroad. I think I would choose railroad. Fresh air, that's my reasoning. Yeah. Physically, I, I think I, I mean, also I'm sure would choose would railroad. Well, I would want to choose railroad, but I'm thinking of realistically, like my body being able to do railroad work. I feel like I would, you adjust to that. Yeah. You have, well, it's a lot like more like my large spine. muscle groups <laughs> where I feel like with sewing, you're like bent over a machine. Indoors. Yeah, both would fuck up my back. The one benefit of sewing is that I feel like it would be like really fun, girly yeah. chit-chats. And that I would like. Yeah. Sewing factory is also a goss factory. Yeah, I feel like there's probably good gossip at the sewing factory. Yeah. yeah. But I think if I had to do it every day, I think I would choose outdoors. We would turn those railroad men into girly pops. Plus they sing. Isn't that 
Wait, what? On the railroad, the railroad workers would sing Just, to keep beat. I've been working on the railroad. And I like to sing while I work. All the live so. long day. Yeah, you might get punched in the face at the sewing factory by these stupid owners if you sang. Both sound terrible. Yeah, both sound awful, to be but clear. I think we I would choose do either. Railroad. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We don't have any new Patreon subscribers to shout out today, but we will say once again, please subscribe to us on Patreon. $3 tier is just to support us. For $6, you get to watch the video every week, mm -hmm. and Maggie just spends uh, an exorbitant in amount of time editing those videos. We're talking 12 hours like per probably video. 12 hours per video. So they're really fun. We have, And you can see my dog. Yeah, we have several Patreon subscribers who watch the videos every week instead of listening to us on streaming platforms and mm -hmm. say that they really love, love it. it. And it's fun. We always have fun outfits. Yeah. And also there's like certain things that you get with the video. Yeah, I cut out listening. some more stuff from the video when I take it to audio because yeah. some things just don't make sense when we're just giving each other a look. Yeah, when you get and like facial expressions, audio. dancing, yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. certain things that are fun. So subscribe on Patreon. You can do $3 just to support us, just as a thank you if you like the podcast and enjoy listening to it. That really helps us to reinvest in what is now becoming our part-time business mm -hmm. for things like merch, partnerships, equipment to make the podcast better. better. And then, yeah, $6 if you want to watch the videos. Mm -hmm. And we have some things that we're kind of like scheming for Patreon that we think will be really Holes fun. And interactive stuff. Yeah, where it can be more of like a community where you can interact online. We can have discussions around the episodes, which we get a lot of like one-off texts from people. Mm -hmm. But I think it, it yeah, would be fun to have our discussion. Patreon subscribers get to talk to each other more yeah. and us about um, each of the episodes. What is our Patreon address? patreon.com slash madwomaninthealliccpod. And then you can, of course, find us on Instagram at madwomaninthealliccpod. You can also find us on TikTok at madwomaninthealliccpod. Yeah. We like to cut down the best parts of every episode so you can watch clips um, if you don't have the hour and a half to watch the whole episode or listen to the whole episode. So you can find us there. And once again, you can email us if you have any related funny interesting tragic Cult stories stories. Ghost stories true crime people or people you want us to talk about any terrible work experiences that you yes. want to share for this episode you mm -hmm. can email us at hello at madwomanintheattic.com <laughs> so send us your stories or just little messages we like to gab yeah. with everyone is our favorite part of this uh -huh. so that's where you can find us and you can always stream episodes they come out every Wednesday morning on all streaming platforms yes okay okay ho 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 bye, bye. love ya love ya mwah would you do that one time? Say bye bye to the people. Bye bye to bye the bye people. Bye bye to the people. <laughs> We're gonna cut that album. <laughs> okay. <laughs> bye. bye.